Oh, that was quite shocking. <laughs> the other one, the other way. Uh, yeah, the other way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hey, okay. Thank you. All right. Well, this evening we're going to uh, look at the uh, there we go the uh, seven feasts of Israel and uh, specifically on the feast of first fruits, which is our third feast. That's still combined together with Passover and unleavened bread. And what we've been doing is reading through verses 4 through 14 to keep them pretty well tied together because we need to see how well they are tied together. And then tonight we will finally conclude on these first three of the feasts, seeing all of the connection together. So beginning at verse 4, once again, we're going to read through this passage. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Start taking note of the days, in other words, the fourteenth day the 15th day. We won't see the next one mentioned, but we're going to, we're going to put it in, in its place. So we re- read on in verse 7, In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work Therein, So this is a reminder that in each one of these particular feasts, there is to be no work done. You know, no, everything has to be turned toward the spiritual. In other words, uh, toward that which is sacred. The holy convocation is the gathering together, in, in essence, to worship the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, or the day after, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now you see that connection to Passover. And then in verse 13, the meat offering. By the way, in the King James, meat is not meat like carne, but it is more like the meat of the grain. So in this case, as we'll see in a moment, it's the the barley grain. And I'll explain that. But meat offering is really a grain offering. Uh, the meat offering thereof shall be two tenths deals or ephah of fine flour mingled 
with oil. An ephah is about 22 liters. Uh, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hen. So what do you have in this particular verse? Bread. Bread and wine. You see now the connections. At least we should start seeing the connections. And you shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. In other words, you've got to give the offering to God first before you partake of it. And then it says, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. I don't know if you can read those words. Uh, They're transliterated from the Hebrew. It says, Sameach Yom Habikurim. Sameach is just the Hebrew word for happy. Happy, Yom is day, and Habikurim is first fruits. Happy first or happy day of first fruits. And that's what they say on the day of that particular feast. Now, we began our study of the seven feasts of Israel with Passover. And the Hebrew word for Passover is Pesach, or Pesach, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Hag Hamatzot. Hag Hamatzot. Matzah, of course, is the unleavened bread. Matzah. You've all heard of matzah. The Feast of Firstfruits celebrated, now listen, celebrated on the 17th day of Nisan, you might say, what happened to 16? Uh, we'll see where that is in just a moment. But the Feast of First Fruits celebrated on the 17th day of Nisan was a celebration of the harvest. When a sheaf, a sheaf is a bundle. In fact, it is the word omer in the Hebrew, O-M-E-R, omer. And it just means a handful. So this is a sheaf. Not a chief, a sheaf. Okay. A sheaf. All right. And it represents the very first of the harvest that was waved before the Lord as a symbolic gesture that dedicated the coming harvest to him. Now, if there's a first fruits, there are more fruits after, right? So keep that in mind. Very important thought. The first fruits is waved before the Lord. This sheaf was was likely to be barley, which was the first crop to ripen. Wheat would not ripen actually until June or July. So barley was the first one to ripen, therefore it was the first grain at the beginning of this particular time frame, which was March or April. Uh, Wheat, as I said, was, was not done until June or July. It is also to be noted that this feast was to be observed once the children of Israel entered the land and not while they were in the wilderness. And this is kind of an interesting point, but I'll explain it toward the end. Uh, Verse 10 actually tells us that, doesn't it? Let me find verse 10 because I had it right here. I don't know how I changed my pages. There it is. Verse 10 says, When you become into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Well, they couldn't do that if they were in the wilderness. So it was when they finally received, came into the land 
that they were able then to have, you know, to uh, uh, till the soil, till the land, and prepare it for, for a harvest. And so the day following the first day of unleavened bread is called first fruits. Now you might say, well, where's the 16th? Because I mentioned 15th as for unleavened bread and then the 17th. I'm not throwing you a curve here, but you've got to remember our days are set up differently today than they were back then and still are in Israel. Because in the Hebrew calendar, the day begins at sundown, not at sunup. It doesn't begin at sunrise. Okay, so just go along with me for a little while and we'll, we'll see how it all fits into place later. <clears throat> so, the day following the first day of unleavened bread is called first fruits, translated directly from the Hebrew as Hag, haki, ha, ha, uh, hag Habikurim. That's feast, Hag of first fruits, Habikurim. And the Bikurim is fruits or first fruits which come from the word or comes from the word bekor meaning firstborn firstborn so there's a clue here now that we're we're being given in the name technically though the feast is called reishit katsir reishit katsir which means the beginning or the first of the harvest that's kind of technically what the, the real name of the feast is. Reishit Katsir, which means the first of the harvest. Now, in ancient times, on this day, a sheaf, which you saw earlier, an omer of barley, the first grain crop to ripen, was waved before the Lord in a prescribed ceremony to mark the start of the counting of the Omer. And, and when we get to the next uh, feast, which is the feast of, of, of uh, Shavuot, which is the uh, feast of Pentecost, we're going to see how the counting of the Omer uh, fits into that. And it's right at the beginning of chapter uh, 23, verse 15. If you've read ahead, then you, you, you see that it talks about, uh, you know, this, this completion of so many days, uh, seven weeks uh, or or seven sevens of weeks, 49 days leading to the 50th day, which is, of course, Pentecost. Pentecost, five. Okay, but well, we won't worry about that. This, so uh, the, wave, the wave offering before the Lord was a, was a prescribed thing, initiating that 49-day countdown to the harvest festival of Shavuot. Now, it needs to be understood that the Feast of first fruits uh, after the after the uh, children of Israel were taken out of the land so many times and, and eventually they were, they were scattered and, and dispersed after AD 70 and so on, that uh, they, they didn't really keep uh, the, the Feast of First Fruits because they didn't have their own land. And you know, there's an interesting story that is told historically that, that uh, you know, when the, uh, when the established church of maybe the third or fourth century uh, uh, came into power, and I say that in, in the fact that, you know, the, the church was at one time, you know, the Roman Empire actually passed beyond all of the, the more pagan parts of it, but uh, still it was the church that, at that time, and, and any Jewish people that wanted to buy land, they were restricted from buying land, so they wouldn't keep this feast. It's a, kind of an interesting thing. 
Yeah, I've kind of read a lot about it. So anyway, that feast was not really well focused on. The only thing they did with it, because they did pass over an unleavened bread, was on that 17th day, they began the countdown to the next feast. So that's all it was good for for a while, after they left the land. Because they were told that they needed to, to, to celebrate this feast in the land. And so, all that in mind, let's, let's look at the text one more time. The Lord said, uh, spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. And I'll show you in a minute how, the, how he waved it. To be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And again, tying it again uh, to uh, Passover. So on this day, the priest would wave this omer, this sheaf, of green barley because that's when they harvested it so that it could then eventually be uh, uh, become ripened and all. Uh, but they would have this green barley before the Lord as a symbolic gesture of dedicating the coming harvest to the Lord, to Him. So in waving this sacrifice, they, what they would do is the priest would... would hold it out to the altar, and then bring it back. That was how they waved it. They waved to the altar, meaning to God, dedicating it to God, and then they would wave it back. So the Lord was being recognized as the author of the entire harvest, and it was dedicated to Him, and then it was received back. That's that motion of the sheaf back, representing the harvest had come from Him to the worshipers. Or in this case, every family did that, that had the harvest, and, and therefore it would come back to the worshiper. So you always gave, back, you get, always gave to the Lord first. That's your first fruits. The first fruits is given to the Lord. The firstborn is given to the Lord. Every first belongs to God. But because of His goodness and mercy, He gives it back. And what does that make us then? It makes us responsible and good stewards of the things. Well, it should make us good stewards of the things that God has given us. Because it comes from Him. So, a portion of it was burnt on the altar. And then, the worshiper would eat the rest. That's why it tells us in verse 14 that you, you, know, you can't eat any of it until after the wave offering. And then you can eat and because part of it was a fire for the purpose of baking, in essence, again, getting the understanding of what is burnt is being sacrificed completely. Therefore, we still have these connections to, uh, to Passover. So this was an expression then of gratitude toward the Lord for supplying their daily bread. Also, the worshiper could not eat the harvest, as I said, until the first fruits was, were given to the Lord. Traditionally, now, traditionally on Passover, a marked sheaf of grain was bundled, and then it was left standing in the field. I forgot to put that picture, and I was going to give you a picture of that. But it would just be a bundle standing out in the field. 
On the next day, the first day of unleavened bread, the sheaf was cut and then it was prepared for the offering on the third day. On this third day, Yom Habikurim, the priest waved the sheaf before the Lord. So, There is one other instructional passage given in the scriptures dealing with first fruits. And I just want you to read it with me. We're going to read it. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. But you'll notice some very close similarities and a couple of just added things to to the uh, feast itself. Numbers 28. Numbers 28. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The next book over. Numbers 28, verses 26 to 31. It says, also in the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new meat offering, and again, remember, meat offering is not meat, meat, but it's uh, it's grain offering, unto the Lord. After your weeks be out, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work, but you shall offer the burnt offering for a sweet uh, savor unto the Lord. Two young bullocks, now notice what else is added here. Two young bullocks, one ram, seven lambs of the first year, and their meat offering of flour mingled with oil, making bread, in other words, three-tenth deals unto one bullock, a deal is a, an ephah, uh, two-tenths uh, deals unto one ram, a several-tenth uh, deal unto one lamb throughout the seven lambs, and one kid of the goats to make an atonement for you. You shall offer them beside the continual burnt offering and his meat offering or grain offering. They shall be unto you without blemish and their drink offering. So very similar, some things added here, but we won't deal with this passage except to point out, generally speaking, what took place on the day of the feast. There would be no servile work. There would be no work at all. You couldn't go in. You couldn't open your business. You didn't do that kind of thing, or work out in the fields. You didn't do that. But there was controversy about precisely when the wave offering, called Tenufat uh, HaOmer, that is the wave offering, uh, there was controversy when it was performed, since the phrase, the day after the Sabbath, can refer to two things. It can refer to Sunday... Now, listen carefully because we're not talking about Sundays like we know Sunday, except it would be at this, in this example. It, would, it could either be Sunday or what is called Yom Rishon. This was the interpretation of the Sadducees. This is how the Sadducees interpreted the days. The wave offering would occur on the first Sunday after the regular weekly Sabbaths. The Sabbath, of course, was Saturday. But remember when the day started. It always started at sundown. For us, it would be like the night before. But for them, that was the beginning of their day. But that was the position, again, of the Sadducees. The day following the high Sabbath now is the, the, the position of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees said that the day following the high Sabbath of the first day of unleavened bread... And by the way, a high Sabbath is a day of Shabbaton, or Shabbaton, or Shabbaton, which is rest. 
that may occur on any day of the week besides the weekly Sabbath day or Saturday. So, uh, again, that could, that could occur on any day depending on the calendar and the calendar year. As I said, this was the position of the Pharisees out and also of Orthodox Judaism even to this day. The wave offering would occur, now notice, now here's the, the 16th of Nisan I'm going to mention. The wave offering would occur on Nisan 16, the day following the high Sabbath, on the first day of unleavened bread. Together, both passages on first fruits point out three offerings. And I'm coming back to Nisan 16 in just a moment. But they point out three offerings. We have read of burnt offerings. We have read of meal offerings and of drink offerings. And we're going to see the significance very shortly. So, with that in mind, we haven't solved the date problem quite yet. So, let's consider though, because this will help us understand it, let's consider the messianic implications of first fruits. It's important then to connect our understanding of putting together the, the New Testament scripture passages with the Old Testament to get an even better picture. So before we build that tentative chronology of the events linking the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread and first fruits to the death, burial and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I, think, I just gave you a clue here. Let's deal with the Messianic fulfillment of this feast. First of all, Passover. We have to go back to Passover for just a minute because we need to understand what each one means. Passover, we know that represents Yeshua, Jesus, dying for the sins of the world as the sinless, perfect Lamb of God on the day of the feast. Passover, the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, if you remember, shows the character of the sinless Son of God who shed His blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And only those who put their faith and their trust in the finished work of the one who embodies righteousness, which is the Lamb of God, the Messiah, only they who put their faith and trust in Him will be given eternal life. And then we come to Feast of first fruits. I haven't stated this yet, but I'm stating it now. Jesus fulfilled the feast of first fruits by being resurrected on the day of the feast. On the day of the feast. So now we can get an idea by looking at a chronology of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we begin with the 14 of Nisan. 14 Nisan evening. Is that the end or the beginning of the day? Beginning, right? Because sundown is the beginning of the new day. Nisan 14, Jesus Passover Seder. There are some who believe that this Seder was actually a... uh, a day earlier than the normal Seder. And we're not going to deal with that. We're just, you know, but that's, that's what they say because the, the evening 
before the, the 14th. But it was the 14th, so in fact, it was the right day. I don't know why, where they get the, the day before, but it's okay. Jesus' Passover Seder, 14 Nisan evening. That's the beginning of the day. And then we get to 14 Nisan daytime. And what do we know about that? Preparation day. The day, that same day as, as the sun would rise, that was preparation day. What had happened all night long, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the scourging of Jesus, the preparation of Jesus to go to the cross. And then we know that on that day, because it's Passover, that Jesus dies in the afternoon at the same time that the Passover lamb, which is called Korban Pesach, is sacrificed in the temple. And Jesus is buried right before evening. Or we can say at evening because then that is the 15th of Nisan. Evening, new day, high Sabbath begins. The day, of course, is the high Sabbath. So all day long, the Sabbath is observed. But then the 16th of Nisan, the evening of that day, that begins. That in the time of Jesus, as they have kind of calculated all of this out, and because of the events that took place, that was the day of the weekly Sabbath, the regular Sabbath began. That was Shabbat Shalom, Friday night. By the way, let's go back one step. Or have I got there yet? No, I haven't got there yet. Okay. Uh, 16th on evening, weekly Sabbath begins. The next one, I was, I was looking kind of backwards. But the next one is the daytime of Nisan 16, the weekly Sabbath. That was the day that the Omer was waved. The Omer was waved on that day. Now, we're not, we're not off, the, off the track, okay? So follow me on this next point. The 17th was evening. The day that, that night, that night, Jesus was raised from the dead. What day did that belong to the evening? The next day. Between the, the Friday, which was, was the... Uh, the high Sabbath and then the Sunday being the day of or the Saturday I should say the day of the offering the wave offering then came the evening connected to that was the the raising of Jesus from the dead before sunrise before sunrise What happens when the sun begins to rise? On the 17th of Nisan, the women were bringing spices 
to the body that was supposed to be in the tomb. But they discovered that the tomb was empty already. That means he did not rise at the, at the break of, of, of dawn. He did not rise at, when the sun came out. It was before. That's when the disciples run and find that the tomb is empty. And then they encounter Jesus on that day. Now, many people will struggle with these calendars and these dates and days. Don't struggle with it. Both the Hebrew calendar and the Gregorian calendar, you know, the one we follow now. We struggle to make sense of the timeline. Whether Jesus was crucified, as some believe, on a Wednesday, actually, to try to make it all fit for there to be three full days, because we're thinking in the terms of a Gregorian calendar where the day begins at midnight, but we don't really begin the day until sunrise. And that's all backwards. Or as some believe that he was that he died on a Thursday. And then so they have a Thursday calendar that kind of, and then they add the Hebrew calendar to it to say, well, in the days in between, then there, you know, then there, there can, you can count one day to the next and so on and so forth. You see how confusing it is? Or as even many today still believe, according to certain liturgical churches, they believe it's Friday. And that makes it real hard if we then fall onto the Gregorian calendar to say, well, it was Friday, then Saturday, and then he was up on Sunday. But did not Jesus say one time that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so shall the Son of Man be Buried three days and three nights using the same terminology. So three days and three nights. In fact, it only works with a Hebrew calendar. It doesn't work with a Gregorian calendar. So what is important is that Jesus suffered and he died on Passover and unleavened bread. On unleavened bread, of course, he suffered and he died and was buried. And he rose again, conquering sin and death for us on Yom Habikurim, the day of first fruits. The day of first fruits. That connection to between the 16th and the 17th of Nisan. That's really confusing sometimes. Don't let it bother you. It all works out. But let's come to the applicational passage because the applicational passage is what we need to deal with today. The passage of Scripture that deals with the first fruits in the book of 1 Corinthians. So I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And beginning at verse 20, notice what Paul says. Paul says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruits of them, of course, that have, have died in Christ, that have died in the Lord. He's the first fruits of them 
that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Now, to understand this, we, we need to read the next verse because then it says, For as an Adam all die, speaking of course of the, uh, the man who brought death, or at least uh, uh, since, man came, uh, since by man came death, we're, we're told which man we're talking about. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ who came with the resurrection of the dead. But every man in his own order, notice this, every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. He is the first fruits, just like he is the Passover lamb, just like he is the unleavened bread. He is also the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So now we have to bring the, un- the understanding of harvest into the picture because what is it that Jesus Christ comes to do but to gather a harvest of all who follow him? In fact, follow him into death. When we identify with him in baptism, we identify with him in his death. To be raised in newness of life with Christ. Now the question oftentimes come up, uh, comes up that if, if other Jewish people were resurrected from the dead, as we've seen in Scripture, and we you know, wouldn't have to even go to the Old Testament. There were a couple of people raised from the dead, but you know they eventually would die again, right? So I'm already giving you the answer. But uh, think of Lazarus as well. Okay, with those people in mind, they say, well, if other people rose from the dead, so how is Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection? Well, that's very simple. There are two types of resurrections. There are two types of resurrections. The first type is merely a restoration back to natural life. A restoration back to natural life. This means that one would die again later, like Lazarus. He would die again. Those who were raised before the resurrection of Jesus died again. The second type of resurrection is true resurrection life when mortality puts on immortality and corruption puts on incorruption and one is no longer subject to death. And that, if you go on in 1 Corinthians 15 down to verse 51, remember what Paul says here. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That would make an excellent placard above a nursery door. You didn't get it. Okay. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Diapers, okay. All right. I just want to make sure you're still with me here. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. 
Paul is reminding us of what is coming for the church. This event that we call the rapture of the church. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could add to that just from what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, that we have our victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, our first fruits. Our first fruit. When Messiah was raised from the dead, he was no longer subject to death. This is the first fruits of the resurrection. The term first fruits means that there is more to come. He rose so that those who believe in him would also rise again, whether dead and back to life, or even those who will be caught up to be with him. Now that's God's business how he does that, of course. And he knows how to do it, and he has the power to do it, so we're going to leave that to him. But when the priest waved the sheaves of the barley harvest before the Lord as the first fruits, what was he doing? He was thanking God for the abundant harvest that they were about to have. The first fruits were the first, the very first of the harvest, as it was only the beginning of the abundance of the harvest that was about to follow. Mashiach. Messiah Jesus, as the first fruits of the resurrection, meant that he was the first of the resurrection that would never see death again. The abundance of the harvest of the resurrection means that there will be an abundance of resurrections in the future and will actually come in a couple of stages. It comes in two stages. And don't forget what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15 when it talks about all things in their order. First Christ, the first fruits, and then. So, the first thing is here. At the first resurrection, the bodies of believers will be resurrected and reunited with their souls. This will occur at the rapture of the church. The dead in Christ shall rise. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with him. Comfort one another with these words. And then there is another resurrection, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints that will occur after the second coming of the Messiah. We we talked about that in the book of Revelation. So as as we close out our study, and this is is kind of getting us kind of early to the the end of, of our study, so... Might have to worship a little bit. Maybe a little bit. But as we close out this study, let's remember this. The resurrection 
is represented in the Hebrew Scriptures as a barley harvest at the beginning of the feast of first fruits. It is also represented the same way in the New Testament. Now think about this. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And look at verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. In other words, truthfully, truthfully, an amen upon an amen, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat, a a grain of wheat, fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now oftentimes we read that and we kind of skip over it without realizing the connection that Jesus is making to, the, to him being the first fruit. Because every single detail of the feast of first fruits was fulfilled by Jesus the Messiah. Every single detail. He was the lamb sacrifice in the Omer. Remember that there was to be a lamb also on the day of first fruits? The reminder of the lamb of Passover? Remember the three feasts are connected. The lamb, the death, the resurrection. The sacrifice, the death, the resurrection. He was the lamb sacrifice because he was the Passover lamb, but he was also the lamb sacrifice of the wave offering, the omer. He, he dwelt among the harvest in the land. Remember we, we talked about how they, were, they couldn't celebrate this until they were in the land and they had the land and they had land now to, to, to cultivate and to harvest? Well, when Jesus arrived, they were in the land and the harvest was the people. So he came to them and was among the harvest in the land. But then he was separated from the harvest field as the, as the sheaf would be separated from the field, taken out of the field to bring brought to the altar to be waved before the Lord in, 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 uh, in offering. He was separated from the harvest field. And then he was threshed as grain. Jesus was threshed. The, the word for threshing in the Old Testament literally means beaten. 
and beaten hard. And then he was winnowed. Another harvest term. He was winnowed as grain. His spirit was separated from his body, in essence. Went on the cross. Father, I commend to you my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. All in this picture. of a grain offering, a burnt offering, the complete sacrifice of Jesus, the grain offering, something that has to die but can come back to life, the drink offering, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness, the remission of our sins. By the way, We can't stop there because he arose from the dead in his body with many following him. There was a little harvest on the day of Jesus' death, wasn't there? An earthquake. Tombs that were all of a sudden opened. (laughs) People coming out. But that wasn't what is meant by this. He arose from the dead in his body with many following him, many who said he is Messiah. And they would follow him into the harvest. And he took the omer. He took the omer, the sheaf, many with him to the Father to be accepted for the entire harvest which would follow for you and for me. The passage in Isaiah chapter 52 that leads into chapter 53 of Isaiah dealing with a suffering servant, gives us a a little picture, an indication of what I just described to you as Jesus fulfilling all of the first fruits. For in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled. And be very high. This is, of course, speaking of Yeshua, of Jesus, of the Messiah. But then notice this. As many were astonished, that's astonished, mean astonished at thee. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred. More than any other, more than any man. And his form, more than the sons of men. Marred. 
beaten, punished. So shall we sprinkle many nations. Now you begin to see the picture of the harvest. Not just those in Israel, but many nations. What happened after Jesus rose from the dead and then eventually ascended into heaven and the church began in Acts chapter 2? And what happened from there? But the harvest field was wide open because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. But then we jump over to the next chapter in verses 4 and 5, and we'll just look at that. You can read the whole chapter tonight. But here it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Just like grain after the harvest, taken and threshed, beaten to break open the, uh, you know, the shell to expose the, the meat of the grain, beaten. But unless there's a beating, there's no way to use the grain. Whether to eat or to plant. So then they would thresh. The threshing was to separate the chaff from the wheat or the barley in this case. Notice it says, but he was wounded for our transgression. It wasn't come upon him because of what he had ever done, because he had never done anything wrong. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was unblemished. He was clean. He was pure. From the very beginning, no sin whatsoever. No sin tainted him from, his, from, from, from the very beginning of his, uh, of his earthly ministry when he began by being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. No temptation came upon him, even in the garden, the hours before he went to the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, we're healed. We're healed. And because of what Jesus did for us, now we can proclaim, and we'll close with this. Now we can proclaim with the Apostle Peter 
what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. We'll close with this. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. What is that? He has caused us to be born again. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He has caused us to be born again, or He has, uh, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a living, a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what does that mean? He is the first fruits to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for all of us who know Jesus Christ, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So now we see the full picture of the first three feasts of the seven feasts of Israel. Passover, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who is Yeshua, the unleavened bread, the revealing of the character of the Lamb, unleavened and without sin, the very same character that we are to have, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The first fruits, the suffering, the sacrifice, the death, and burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, let me just say that the next study that we're going to have to transition to the next feast, which is the Feast of, of Harvest or the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot, is to connect now the prophetic implications that we haven't talked about yet of the first three because the first three have already been fulfilled in Jesus. Passover was fulfilled in Jesus. Unleavened bread was fulfilled in Jesus. And first fruits was fulfilled when he rose from the dead. But there are some connections to these three with the coming of Jesus again. So we're going to make those connections next time. And then that's going to bring us to the, uh, the fourth feast, which is uh, the Feast of Pentecost. So that's what our focus will be then. So keep reading, keep studying, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for that great, great work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, for the life that we ourselves have never deserved the life that is eternal, the life that is everlasting, one that is given so wonderfully by you through Jesus Christ, your Son. 
Father, we pray that we will begin to allow you to just open our minds and our hearts up more and more to seeing all the pictures of your word come to life. Not only for what has affected us already to this point, which is our salvation, but, but also, Lord, as we look for the coming of Jesus Christ again, that you will bless us indeed with more and more of your wisdom and grace so that we may share with others the love of Christ and how important it is for people to see that what was prophesied in times past was fulfilled to the letter by Jesus Christ himself. So Father, we thank you for your inerrant word and ask that you will indeed continue to Show us your grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.